everyone, and welcome back to the Fan Fiction Tapes. I'm your host today, Maya, pronouns she, her, and I'm joined today by... I am the guest, Elizabeth, pronouns she, her. And I am our producer, and I guess co-host today, uh, Ian, pronouns he, him. Where's Dylan? I'm curious. He uh, is not feeling well today. That's fair. All right, today's episode is all about the various punk genres found in speculative fiction. Most people have heard of one or two, uh, most likely steampunk or cyberpunk, but there are a lot more beyond that. And with such a diverse spread ranging from biopunk, dieselpunk, to terms also such as solarpunk and even hopepunk, you might be left wondering, what makes them all quote-unquote punk? And that's actually kind of the tricky part of this episode because some of them especially in the case of steampunk are generally used as more of a setting or an aesthetic than a genre to themselves of course the origin of all this dates back to i believe the 1990s with the coining of the term cyberpunk it wasn't the Neuromancer, wasn't that written in the 80s? I may have gotten the decade wrong. I have to check that up. I'm fairly sure, and Ghost in the Shell started in 1989, so. Neuromancer was released in 1984, and a lot of the roots of the genre are actually in the science fiction movements of the 60s and 70s, with like yeah, Philip K. Sense. Dick. Oh, Yeah. I mean, if you think of, like, Andro's Dream of Electric Sheep and its progeny Blade Runner, that is, like, a seminal sort of cyberpunk. Um, Girl, I know you're young, but there is a difference between the 90s and the 70s. Silence. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I forgot. Wait, how old are you, Maya? Uh, I am just about old enough to have alcohol. Oh, right. You weren't alive in the nineties. <laughs> I uh, was not. I was. I was. Not I mean, I was. I was two by the end of the nineties. But like, whatever. <laughs> Doesn't matter. Any excuse to dunk on people younger than me, <laughs> even as my body gives way. <laughs> All right, back on topic. Cyberpunk was a response to the kind of earlier, more hopeful works of science fiction science fiction and speculative fiction that foresaw a gleaming chrome-plated future for us all that you know fancy technology made everything nicer and as that future steadfastly refused to arrive authors began to imagine a more dystopian future For listeners who are already familiar with cyberpunk, one of the hallmarks is corporate overloading and extreme poverty. Well, extreme income disparity. Yes. Yeah. That is the word I was looking for. And that is really a hallmark of it being coming out of the 70s and 80s, because the 70s was uh, very marked by economic recession and the 80s was very marked with 
Greed is good, capitalism, and deregulation. The era of Reagan and Thatcher. May they rot in hell. Yes. Cyberpunk as well has this common element of this escapism, this escape into virtual realities beyond the less-than-savory lives many of the inhabitants of cyberpunk worlds live. Which, I mean, I can't blame them, given that's almost exactly what I do, but with any and all pieces of media. So, my question here is, where does the punk come into it? I would assume that the punk aspect stems from sort of a a sense of, like, rebellion against the dominant narrative of something. So, some a genre or a it's that an aesthetic movement can only necessarily be punk, at least what I would guess is the case. It can only be punk if it is responding to and reacting against the sort of dominant hegemonic narrative or framework of understanding things. And since, as you said, like the dominant narrative in sci-fi in like the 60s and 70s was this gleaming chrome-plated... Um, I guess, luxury, straight, space, capitalism. I don't even know. Um, <laughs> the, uh, so that, I, w- I, would ima- I, would, I would guess, this is entirely my hypothesis, but that, that initial sort of impetus was probably, it was in reaction to that. It's like, no, that is not actually going to be the case because, like, poverty is still going to exist. The, the sort of, hence the sort of, like, punk the rougher streetwise um realist perhaps uh tone was reflective of the sort of burgeoning punk movement in the 70s i guess yeah and also it might be good for some of our listeners to define what punk exactly is given as i certainly did not before starting the research for the episode know it i mean it's a very nebulous term yeah, it, it's quite it. nebulous, um, but... Like, punk in music versus, like, these punk genres of literature, they're not... There, there's a big difference. <laughs> there's... I would say there are commonalities in some respects, like the rebellious sort of... The, the reaction, the, 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 um, the pushing back against the dominant hierarchical narrative, but, like, it's... I mean, one is... One is music and fashion and the other is like literary although i guess that the fashion stuff the punk fashion does kind of kind of cross over with like the artistic depictions we see of the literary punk spheres yeah as well it's kind of that defiance to power as how i would kind of yeah. put it uh that kind of makes something punk generally although as cyberpunk became more and more popular over the years, it <laughs> it got commodified, which inevitably. is rather ironic um, for something screaming about the warnings of corporate greed. It itself succumbing to such. Yeah, punk. At least in terms of the subculture, there's a lot of uh, emphasis on nonconformity, uh, DIY. Um, and also anti-consumerism, anti-corporatism, anti-authoritarianism. 
Um, this does come through in a lot of cyberpunk works because the protagonists tend to be not on the side of corporations, criminals, uh, quote unquote, um, you know, hackers stealing from the corporations, uh, living on the edges of society. They're the subaltern, basically. Yes. Maya, are you familiar with that term from anything other than Lancer? No. So in the Lancer setting, they use the term subaltern instead of robot. And that is a very interesting choice. It's almost the Detroit become human sort of thing. <laughs> I kind of think about that. I, I suspect that's likely intentional on the behalf of the creators as definitely the way some of Lancer is written, I think it intends to do almost commentary on the Star Wars style of droid personhood, even non-human personhood, if you would, uh, for the Lancer reference, where it is very clear through the establishment of the setting that the artificial intelligence of the setting, not the machine learning algorithms we have today, but actual, true, proper artificial intelligence are people. And yet, in many ways, by the society of Lancer, they are not always treated as such. But I digress. What I meant by, like, subaltern is, like, the sort of, you know, like, the bell hooks way of... I mean, I have a very passing knowledge of bell hooks, but, like, the sort of way in which she uses it, like, the... The or the sort of anthropological way of using it, the the underclass, I guess, the 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 non those who are in, who are whose existence is in opposition to the hierarchical dominant um, framework of society. At least that's that's how I was using it. Yeah, I I think that's a good way to to put it, uh, and a good way of thinking about the typical main character fare of the cyberpunk genre. Of course, there is also the elephant in the room when it comes to cyberpunk. Cyberpunk. By which you mean? The uh, cyberpunk brand, as it were, such as with Cyberpunk 2077, the somewhat recent flop of a AAA game from Excuse CD Projekt Red. Yeah, that's one way of putting it. At first, it. anyway, before it got patched to heck. I still haven't played it since it's been patched. <laughs> and I was... Let's say I was dissatisfied with the release version, but I digress. Again, there is also the cyberpunk role-playing game, which I have not investigated much. Is that where the cyberpunk 2077 like comes from? Was that like the original sort of... I believe so. Yeah, I think that's correct. And there is, of course, what might be the most popular of the three overall, at least in terms of mainstream cyberpunk edge runners, the recent Netflix animated show. By Studio Trigger. Ah, that's who made it. That is actually the only thing. Yeah, I it was Studio I've Trigger. Enjoyed. It was directed by Imaishi Hiroyuki. But I think it was co-written by like the original game writers or written by the original game writers in collaboration, the 2077 folks. Yeah. 
And the reason I mentioned this elephant in the room is one particular thing I want to touch on before we get to some advice nearer to the end of the episode, should we make it there. And that's the ableism trap. A Something of a mainstay of the cyberpunk genre are, is heavy body modification and prosthetics. And this is common as well with other punk genres that we'll be talking about at least the body modification in some prosthetics, especially with steampunk. I would say that's also common in, like, just sci-fi in general, although it's perhaps more common in cyberpunk. Yes, it, it is generally common with sci-fi. Think to Luke's prosthetic hand in whichever movie that was. Or Anakin's prosthetic most things. Yes. Revenge of the Sith. He's more machine than man now. Twisted and evil. <laughs> yes, and that is part of it. The The trope of becoming less human the more your body is synthetic is... Oh boy, that is... It, it is incredibly ableist. I have thoughts on this because it's... I don't know, it's a rather interesting part of Ghost in the Shell, which is probably my favorite cyberpunk story slash universe slash IP, although it's arguable whether it's even cyberpunk at all. It's I would say it's more cyber noir because the protagonist is a cop. <laughs> Let's just say it. <laughs> yeah, that's very far from, from punk ethos. Yeah. But it's still like the aesthetics are still kind of there and it is it does it is rather anti corporate even though it it's from like a I wonder if like the Japanese perspective has something had something to do with it, like I don't know. But there is there's quite a bit of like that sort of thing. It's not I wouldn't say there's like an ableism trap in there, but like the sort of notion it, there's a lot of exploration of the notion that like whether like one's humanity is diminished by having non-organic components or an entirely non-organic like thing like an apparatus like um with like sentient arguably sentient like ai robots in standalone complex the tachikamas for instance um or in ghost nutshell 95 the um the puppet master but it's like but i would say it handles it handles that in a fairly positive way like it 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 reaffirms the sort of humanity of it, it it doesn't really go you know the he's more machine now the man twisted and evil kind of thing but that's i mean this is just my limited perspective yeah it's it's definitely a wiggly area and there can be interesting works done there but to our able listeners who are interested in writing a cyberpunk story that deals with the concepts of body modification especially prostheses i would for one listen to the disabled folks around you as you can't really get more true than that at least with regards to like lived experience yes lived experience it's, it's that's more of a yeah that's what i was trying to get at which uh was covered in one of my early engineering classes actually which was and I would say, like, get a, I mean, we're kind of jumping forward to the advice thing already, but, like, 
get a wide variety of like disabled folks listen like um uh advice when writing just because like individual like one disabled person does not speak for all disabled people because like there are different ways of being disabled there are different perspectives on that there are different like each person has a different relationship to their disability um yes no so like no minority is a monolith and disabled folk are no exception to that but it is still important to like talk with them and do that when sort of dealing with this stuff for this as well i would also advise a sensitivity reader as the perfect replacement limb that makes you just as you were just as whole as you were before is also rather ableist and well the specific wording of just as whole as you were before <laughs> yeah that that was intentional word choice yeah uh because there are ways of like i would say there are ways of writing it where it's like there's it, where you can like not necessarily be reflective of like a real world disability because like of the sort of sci-fi nature of the stories but if you're if you're going down that framework the the whole like the framework of of being whole versus being like disfigured and mutilated or whatever like that that's something that is definitely a a tar pit of sorts yes and there was something i was going to add on to that and then my brain dropped it that's fair <laughs> well in that case i'll just put in something here that i i want to mention um so i know in like edge runners and the cyberpunk franchise as opposed to cyberpunk as the genre um you get that whole prosthetics eat your soul cyber psychosis thing right that's cyber psychosis is the term that they use um and i think there's a there's actually a trope called cybernetics will eat your soul if you look that up on tv tropes that doesn't really seem to be a thing in a lot of earlier works of cyberpunk i am fairly familiar with uh a couple of william gibson's it's definitely not a thing in ghost in a shell i can attest to that yeah um particularly in the neuromancer trilogy um prosthetics and bodily modification are just a common thing there's no downsides to it and some people even embrace it as a uh expression uh, a form of self-expression there is or perhaps it's like a liberatory aspect yeah in in the short story johnny mnemonic which was adapted in the 90s uh into a movie starring keanu reeves yes yes yes. (laughs) it has it has it has a, a a cybernetically enhanced dolphin that they use as as a a crack uh a com a digital safe cracker Um, but in the original novel, uh, they get some assistance from a gang of street punks who are biohackers who do things like replace their teeth with, with Doberman's fangs. And one of the protagonists of both that story and the Neuromancy trilogy is Molly Millions, an assassin for hire who has numerous prosthetic and, and biological upgrades. Molly Millions sounds like a name from Trigun. <laughs> Molly Millions is a badass. 
<laughs> I guess I'm thinking of like if Millions you, Knives and then Millie. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Molly Millie. If if you like if <laughs> you if you like things. badass female characters, um, read the Neuromancer trilogy. I think I will have to do that. I actually just before this episode, in order to do some reading on some books I hadn't read in a long time for late on the episode, I went out and got a new library card. So I'll have to do that. Now, we mentioned cyberpunk as a response to the existing trends within sci-fi and speculative fiction, and as cyberpunk became popularized, there was, of course, then a reaction to cyberpunk, and this sprung along with the technological developments of the last 30 years as renewable energy technologies became actually feasible for power generation as large wind turbine farms, solar panels, and, well, less so nuclear reactors, but other technologies as well, came to the limelight. Solarpunk also arose, a <laughs> another refusal at the then-trend for more dystopian futures, such as the ones predicted by Cyberpunk, a future that's more hopeful as the Earth starts to cook itself. I can't exactly blame people for wanting something like that. Unfortunately, I am not very familiar with this stuff, so I'll have to sit it out. <laughs> yeah, solarpunk is as well the genre I am least familiar with here. I have not read much, if any, from it. So, my impression when it comes to a lot of these other punk genres is that they mainly use the name punk because cyberpunk did, and not a lot of them have a whole lot in connection with actual punk subculture and punk ethos. I there is a distinct sort of, of them, steampunk yes. fashion, like it became a thing, but I wouldn't say that like that steampunk is necessarily punk steampunk in the same is... way that pipe cyberpunk is punk. Frankly, in my opinion, the least punk out of all of the ones we're planning to discuss today. Solar punk, at least, does, I believe, generally discuss some about colonialism and breaking away from capitalism and the consumerist culture, which has gripped us all. But again, as I yeah. said, solar punk. Okay, yes, solar punk definitely theory. does does still have some punk to it. But again, I am less familiar with it as a genre and more familiar with it as an aesthetic. I am kind of familiar with like. I would say I'm somewhat familiar with like steampunk in terms of like I've I've engaged with some steampunk stories and like I don't know, I'm thinking of like the anime Princess Principle. Um I think the the main sort of way in which it intersects, at least with like cyberpunk and the other sort of punk-ish things is like it takes the sort of, it's like the speculative fiction concept, but kind of, it, it, it retrofits. I don't know if that's necessarily the right word, but it's like, it's a time displacement of, it's essentially a subtrope of like retro futurism, the steampunk and then diesel punk. It's like, what would it have been like? And this all ties into like alternate history kind of stuff, uh, which is a whole other rabbit hole that I am entirely unfamiliar with. But like steampunk and diesel punk are essentially like, what if the technology had developed in a certain way 
that is not the way it develops in the real world, but is it's still speculative fiction, but it's like it's not speculative of our future, but rather of what the future could have been from the past, but looking back at the past from the present. It's it's hard to describe. But I think you get the idea. And I think I think those those can be like I mean those are fruitful discussion topics in themselves, but I don't necessarily know if they I think they're like a secondary outgrowth of like cyberpunk and its associated um phenomena rather than like a they're not quite as directly related to punk pure and simple as cyberpunk is they're more like they're two degrees of kevin bacon away from punk yeah for for readers curious about solar punk i or for readers i i don't know why i keep doing that i always refer to listeners as readers this is like i don't know how many episodes i've done it on but i'm pretty certain this is not the first time Kim Stanley Robinson's New York 2140 is somewhat uh, solar punk. I think it's generally more dystopian than solar punk generally is. Unfortunately, it has been many years since I read it. I remember enjoying it, enjoying it to the point that I went out and acquired three other books of Kim Stanley Robinson, which, of course, I have since procrastinated on reading. Oh, right, my point. Uh, New York 2140 is set in a New York that has been flooded by climate change. The streets of today have become canals. And kind of how people deal with that. I sadly don't remember the novel as well as I would like to, but I do remember enjoying it. And speaking of dystopias... Before we get to the other punk genres I wanted to mention today, a bit of a detour to talk about Grimdark and other dystopias, in particular Grimdark. Grimdark was... The phrase Grimdark was coined from one of the opening words in Warhammer 40k, or Warhammer 40,000, which is a extremely dystopian science fiction series that is set in the far, far future, generally originated originated as a war game and has also evolved into some video games as well. And there's books. It's quite popular, as I understand it. Uh, oh, right. Again, I have been distracted. ADHD talking hour, folks. The name Grimdark comes from, in the grim, dark future of the year 40,000, there is only war. The grimdark genre imagines... Sounds like you see Gundam. I I have not watched much Gundam, but Gundam is generally <laughs> In the Grimdark future, the Grimdark. there is only war. I I don't know. I'm sorry. That was that was a digression. But <laughs> Well, this is the ADHD talking hour. Digressions are the soul of conversation. And Warhammer 40k hit it off really well and became quite popular. I believe we mentioned this last episode as well. And it's some of the crowd it's popular with is not a great crowd. As the setting of Grimdark dictates Warhammer 40k, there's not really any good guys, so to speak. And the closest thing 
I don't know if I'd even call it the closest thing to that, but the the Imperium of Man is a fascist imperial state. Are they like the focal characters or focal forces, though? Kind even of, if they're yes. not like the protagonist, per se. I don't really know anything about Warhammer, except that it's like, as you said, grimdark. So I probably don't know quite as much about 40K as Maya, but um, uh... I did follow Brava Alphabusa's If the Emperor Had a Text-to-Speech Machine series on YouTube for a while. So that's where my <laughs> uh, that's the main filter for for my knowledge of, of 40K lore. Um, my my I, 40k lore comes from osmosis and watching Russian Badger videos. So okay, maybe maybe we're in a similar boat then. Yes. Um. So there are multiple factions. Uh, you have the fascist theocratic Imperium of Man. Um. You have the Eldar, basically space elves. Um. And you've got the Nids. You've got the Tyranids, Tyranids uh, all-consuming space bugs. Yeah. Um, you've got the Dark Eldar, who are space elves but sadistic. Um, you've got the Orcs, uh, who This just are... sounds like Tolkien, but with Blackjack and Hookers and in space. It kind of is. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I would say, yeah, that's what it is. But almost explicitly. Uh, right. The Orcs, who do nothing but fight because they're actually funguses who reproduce through spores, and fighting is how they spread their spores. Uh, and you have the chaos demons. Oh, and you have the Tau, who are the closest thing to a good faction, as far as I'm aware. Yes, I believe Maybe. they are the closest. It's Nobody in Warhammer 40k is someone you'd really want to sit next to anywhere at any time ever like they're all just pieces of shit yeah what a what a hopeful and uplifting view of the future huh <laughs> you'd be best off with the tau because that's basically space nato in their best interpretation and in their worst interpretation space nato controlled by a secret cabal oh uh... yeah the protocols of the elders of the Tau. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's the only thing I could come up with. The listeners who are unfamiliar, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion is a deeply anti-Semitic text published during the 20th century. Possibly slightly <laughs> earlier. Maybe. I don't know, the actually late know 19th, for certain. I think. It, it's unclear. It is unclear what the exact origins of that text are. It is likely Tsarist propaganda. <laughs> what? Yeah, no, that's fair. Well, I thought it was originally published in German. Uh, that know. doesn't preclude it from being Tsarist propaganda. That's fair. That's fair. Basically, it's just anti-Semitic drivel. But yeah, I was I was invoking it because you sound like it was like oh yeah, a space NATO yeah. controlled it's... by a secret cabal. I was like, oh yeah, all these anti-Semitic like conspiracy theories. A lot of theories. conspiracy theories that deal with some secret cabal or hidden organization ruling the world, especially ones that talk about a hidden group of wealthy is derived in some manner from the protocols of the Elders of Zion. That yeah. and like a combination of like Freemason shit. 
but yeah, whatever. the the protocols of the elders of Zion is basically the foundation of every existing anti-Semitic conspiracy theory. Existing modern anti-Semitic conspiracy theory, anyway. Yeah. But sorry, that's a digression. Yes. We're talking about Warhammer. <laughs> yes, and this, well, this grim dark future, while it became pretty popular, and I can understand why, given there's not much to look forward to. In response to this, a literary movement kind of began to emerge that has been called Hope Punk. So it's like a reaction to a reaction to a reaction, kind of. Yes. Uh, a lot of this is talking about reactions to something or another, as punk subculture is itself a reaction. It is fundamentally reactionary, as much as that's actually usually a negative statement, it is in reaction to the way that corporations, authoritarians, Republicans, and other fascists have... And you're talking about the Republican Party, not small uh, yes. R Republicans. Yes. <laughs> yes. yes. Republican I... Party with a capital R from the United States. Yeah. Their control over our lives, and as much as it increased over the years, let is part of the... The, the genesis punk of movement. the punk movement, yeah. Yes. And like, the conservatives in the UK, all that. Labor, too. Well... Labor post, like, 80s. Yeah. Hope Punk is more about seeing a future that is worth fighting for. It will be a hard fight, but fighting anyways because it's the right thing to do. The notion that, like... The notion that there can be a good outcome. The notion that that it is possible. That it's a reaction, I guess, if the... If the narrative that, like, if the sort of, like, doom and gloom narrative has become sort of what is perceived as hegemonic, then hope punk is actually punk. But it depends on the context, I would I would think, because, like, it if hope punk is responding to the sort of, um, if hope punk isn't actually responding to sort of a, um, that a hegemonic sort of grim dark, a hegemonic grim darkness. Let's let's just put it that way. Then it then perhaps it isn't really hope punk, and that is I would say just a consequence of the nebulous or or not necessarily nebulous, but the the fact that these these terms are so fluid. Yeah, uh, that's. I was going to say that's one of the fun things, but uh, it's also a pain in the ass. <laughs> it's really hard to define things nice and cleanly because even if Art you can manage to get a set of boxes that you can fit everything into someone is going going to come along and uh, smash into your boxes with a hammer that's how you get like 500 different metal subgenres yeah just as an example <laughs> so the closest hope punk kind of work that those of us here right now are familiar with is the Rooster Teeth show Ruby, which meets with many of the beliefs of hope punk and aligns with its differences against the similar Noble Bright, which 
is more like the white man's hope punk, if that makes sense. It is I, I a, mean, that's a loaded term because that, a that is a very loaded term. Described um, as <laughs> I'm trying to phrase it right. Noble Bright is it sees the existing systems as good. Good is good because it's good. Oh, is it? Is it? Is it the opposite of Grimdark? Noble Bright is like. Is that is that is it intentionally the opposite of Grimdark? Like, yeah. Like a like a direct sort of like grim noble dark bright. Or is it like an actual is is Noble Bright like an actual story? I think the origin of the term Noble Bright actually does come from someone trying to make a one of those four quadrants diagrams out of the term grimdark <laughs> and coming up with what the opposite of those would be. So grim, noble, dark, bright, and then trying to define what makes something grim versus noble. And if I'm remembering the original chart correctly, Grim means that no matter what you do, the status quo will not change, whereas noble means that the status quo can be changed by the original definition. Uh, um, and that, yeah. bright versus dark is um, just the general tone of the setting. I guess something dark like Claymore would be sucks. like noble dark or something. Yeah. I think the original example they gave for a noble dark work or no, um, not noble dark. Uh, Noble Bright? Grim Bright? Not that one either. Grim Bright. Um, the Sandman series. Because fundamentally, Dream cannot change. But it is not a dark setting. Huh. Anyways, this has been a, another like digression a on the ADHD semantic, talking hour. There's a lot of semantic fluidity employed in sort of mapping those words to a, a concept. Yeah, so that is actually an interesting thing, interesting thing that I didn't think of when writing the episode. That is We're defining things here on the show. That doesn't mean these definitions are worth anything necessarily. And it doesn't mean they're like the one true definition of anything. Because like someone else could like have a totally different and equally valid definition of, I don't know, say Grimdark or whatever. For, for instance. Yes, I think Grimdark would be one you wouldn't find much disagreement on, but especially ones like Hope Punk and Solar Punk, where we are less than experts by a long shot. Yeah, there's probably going to be people with other definitions out there. Yeah, I think especially like Hope Punk depends on the context. Yeah. Um, and it depends very much on the individual circumstances of because it because it. It isn't. Is it? It's not just the setting. It's intrinsically tied with the narrative, like structure and narrative, like the the flow of the narrative, the the characters, the sort of messages espoused. I mean, I guess it all depends on the messages espoused. But there's there's very much there's more of. It's not an aesthetic the way that like steampunk or hope or solar punk or cyberpunk can be. It's it's a far more tonally based categorization. Yeah. Uh when I was look when I was doing some of the research for this episode, Harry Potter was mentioned in part of the impetus for Hope Punk, and that is Oh exceptionally you mean like, ironic. Oh, I was I was thinking like maybe it was like Harry Potter was like the the way that it just does not change at all at the end of Harry Potter was something that people were reacting to. Is that not no. what it was? No. Oh, yeah, see, the it, thing is it that, was like, a 
Vox article, and yeah, okay, I've pulled it up now. I can see where they got that idea. I can see where it might have been, like, in that, but I just feel like the writing undercuts that quite substantially by the last, like, few books, especially, that it doesn't really, like, it doesn't really hold up. Because everything is essentially just static. It, it's a reversion to the status quo. It's, it's like order was restored. It's not like, I would say Lord of the Rings is very much sort of a hope punk kind of thing. Even if, even though it was like a, it's like a proto hope punk thing, even though it was like written in the fifties, because it was like, it was, or it can be seen in like a hope punk light because it's like, it's a reaction sort of like to the, the sort of grim, the grimness of, of war and death and destruction and like the two world wars that Tolkien experienced first firsthand in world war one and secondhand in world war two that it's the status quo at the end of lord of the rings is substantially changed from the beginning whereas in harry potter it isn't it isn't <laughs> yeah i have found the point. it is after 9 11 stories like harry potter and the lord of the rings films provided essential tales of optimism in response to widespread narratives of war and anti-globalization Andrew Slack, creator of the non-profit Harry Potter Alliance, which works to bring the fictional progressive values of fantasy worlds like Harry Potter to bear on real-world activism. And there's more there. So I was misremembering some of it. Uh, but what, what I found deeply ironic was the fictional progressive values of fantasy worlds like Harry Potter. Harry Potter is by no means progressive. Like, it was... Okay... It was, there was a prevailing view back in the day. I think it's, like, younger folks may not necessarily remember, but, like, it was, it was seen as, like, even though it was, like, it's very, it was very milk toast. It was, like, it was seen as, like, more progressive than it actually was. So there was I would agree that it was definitely perceived as more progressive than it is, but with the ingrained fat phobia, racism... Racism. It's like there's been racism. a lot of re-examination in like the past, like I would say six to ten years. Um, Especially with Rowling getting more, more radicalized with her transphobia and anti-Semitism. That as well. It's led people to kind of go, oh, of course, many people haven't necessarily realized that. I do remember not always feeling terribly square about the way the Dursleys were handled. Yeah. But that was about the only of it that I caught as a child. In my defense, I was in first grade at the time. I think there's (laughs) a... The thing is, like, how can we... Let's get back to... Let's get back to Ruby, because that, I would say, is definitely hope punk. Yes, which for... Listeners who have not had the misfortune of having a hyperfixation on Ruby, what is Ruby? Ruby is a 2013 show from yeah. then small time animation studio Rooster Teeth dealing with a main cast. It's a. It didn't start out as Hope Punk, but it became that very. Yes, Definitely it did not start like, out that way. Volume 4, like, marked, I would say, the very stark transition to Hope Punk. Whereas previous, it was, like, 
at the end of volume three definitely kind of it there was a sort of cerebus syndrome going on ish even though it was planned oh christ <laughs> i'm not saying that joke on air i typed a fairly off-color joke in the text i am vibrating with restraint right now <laughs> Anyway, anyway, I do think that that kind of informs the the tonal shift. Rest in peace, Montium. Yes, I, he is missed. But yeah, it definitely I would say that definitely informed the. Uh... So again, for context, what I typed was talk about death of the author, a phrase for removing the works of an author, especially someone such as. Rowling. A craze? I'm sorry. It was a the title of an essay by Roland Barthes. It was Oh, not... is that the origin? Yeah. I have learned something today. But le- learn about the yeah, it was it was a pun on La Morte d'Arthur instead of like, La Morte d'Auteur, the death of the author, the death of Arthur by Thomas Mallory was it's sort of like it was it was literary criticism in like the sixties or so, and it was basically like taking a, a reaction, funnily enough against the sort of prevailing trend of like like of textual criticism having to like involve the intents of the author and making the case instead for like the validity of readings that were not necessarily sanctioned or intended or condoned by the author but that none, nonetheless existed in the text so i would very much caution i, I that, i'm sorry that's you got that impression what i was going to give no it's i am i am one of today's lucky 10,000 it would seem I'd never heard any of that before with respect to death of the author. I had always just kind of heard of it as a literary term and didn't know the history there. Oh, yeah. That was fascinating. Authorial intent does not matter as much as we, as some people say it does. Yes. I would say it still does matter, but it's it's sort of like, it's, 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 it was a reaction against, it was a, a sort of a stance against like, that like authorial intent as primacy. Yeah. Uh, authorial authorial intent matters, but so do the author's unconscious biases. Yes. Yeah. Or whatever reading you might derive from the text. Anyway, it's a digression. I mean like the, uh, the author means I can interpret Shinji Hikari as trans. <laughs> Nobody can give a f and part of what makes that funny is the obsession with some part of the Ruby community with the intents of Monty Oom for the series, especially given the recent confirmation of the primary WLW ship of the show, that of Yang and Blake. And there are a lot of people who are like, Monty wouldn't have wanted this, and like, dude. Despite the fact that he explicitly would have it's also besides the point. Yeah. Because there are other authors. There were other authors, Miles and Carrie, who were there from the beginning. Who, as far as I know, actually have done a large part of the writing from the beginning. Yeah. I mean, they, they arguably did more than Monty. I'm going to say it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> this is going to be a hot take. So apologies to all of the listeners who like Ruby. Monty, as much as he was a phenomenal animator was not helpful for Ruby. Well, okay, he made the animations look dope as f***. Mm-hmm. Indisputable. However, however, Montium also 
had an often deleterious effect on the writing of the show. They just toss stuff in with no regard for internal consistency because it looks cool. I have animated these fight scenes. Miles and Carrie, please come up with a storyline to connect them. Anyway, yeah, let's uh, let's just talk about the hope punk aspects because that's what we're yes. here for. After um, yes. <laughs> Once again, we have been distracted. Around the fourth and fifth volumes, Ruby starts emphasizing that the system in place kind of sucks. It, it's in the text, I think, from quite early on. Yeah. But it's not handled well or emphasized until we see kind of the arc of James Ironwood, who goes from a well-meaning friend of the protagonists to a authoritarian dictator. I would say that the systemic, like, the systemic rot, so to speak, is brought up fairly early on in, like, I think volume four by Raven Bronwyn? Yeah. Um, uh, as well as with, I don't know, I think... It wasn't characters. handled well. I've, I've actually recently been re-watching the show with a friend of mine, as he hasn't seen it yet, and I needed to inflict pain on a friend. And, God, the way Raven handles it is... She's very, like, the system sucks, so I'm just going outside it. You know? Like, I'm just gonna... I'm I just could gonna have written her character better, and I know it. <sighs> That's a contentious opinion. But fair enough. I am also quite egotistical, so... <laughs> I am also still molding, like... Two weeks after watching this scene again, the he gave us the ability to turn into birds. Oh, that. Mm, I feel like mm. that's... Let's, let's just cut this show. This is... Yes, it is. We're off track. This it... is a digression of a digression. Um, but there, there are characters... There are characters who emphasize that, like, the system is... Screwed up. Yes, and it's also seen through the arc we see with Ozpin, where... He starts off as a very trusted mentor figure to the main cast, but as it's revealed that his machinations have machinations and he's been lying to everyone all the time, he starts becoming a lot less popular with the other characters, including someone who trusted him quite deeply, feeling very betrayed by him. I would say from volume seven, like from volume seven, eight, and nine, it's like, you start to see the cracks in, like, the main sort of protagonisty group, like, Team Ruby, Team JNR, plus Oscar, plus Crow. Like, they're sort of, um, like, their sort of trust in those around them is very much broken. Right. And it, it leads to the sort of, the central sort of, like, the split between groups in Volume 8 and... The events of Volume Nine. Yeah, Ruby's Ruby's arc in Volume Nine is probably the the pinnacle of that sort of like, like, looking into the abyss kind of thing. Yeah, as well something that I can't believe we haven't mentioned yet. It is revealed at around Volume Six, I think. I don't remember exactly. Maybe it's Volume Five. That to their knowledge the enemy they fight is unkillable. Yeah. 
That would be in the beginning of Volume 6. The Lost Fable. Thank you. Yes. And that... The persistence of the protagonists in the face of that news is part of what makes that hope punk. They, They never really give up. They are tempted to give up at some points. Repeatedly. Yeah, particularly in Volume 9, but I feel like that... I don't know, I think the Volume 9 is the best written volume of all of the... Yeah. Well, for it be because it deals with, like, this internal sort of character, like, struggle. It's a it's an internalization of the sort of external societal kind of... Or, not societal, but, like, the external systemic, like, pressure to just succumb to Salem, the antagonist's, um, like undefeatability and her like her her own machinations for the world and ultimately there is a process of like i guess i don't know i guess the the only thing i can really term it is like i don't know if this is necessarily the great term for it but dialectical synthesis of like you have you have the sort of like the 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 thesis of like of we must continue, but then the antithesis of like we have to, there is no way to, um, and then there's like this eventually the synthesis of like we have to find a way to sort of like do it regardless, and we'll approach it from a different angle, I guess. I don't know if I'm using the term dialectical synthesis correctly, but. There is a sort of like there is a process of transformation in volume nine that occurs. Yes. And I feel like that sort of transformation, that sort of like looking into the pits of despair and coming to a sort of almost cathartic understanding of of the purpose and the destiny insofar as it is it is is written at all. Um, and the sort of trajectory of of what um, will happen next. Yeah, and we are at about an hour in, and there is still several more things we wanted to talk about today. Steampunk. Probably the most mainstream of the punk genres, and as I mentioned earlier, the least punk. I think it depends, but... In, general, uh, in yes. the origins, in, in its origins, it's definitely the least punk. However, there have since been people who come along and go, you're punk now, bitch. Some of the early works I encountered, at least, I don't know, early, some of the er- first works I encountered in steampunk were Leviathan by Scott Westerfeld, also author of the popular dystopian series The Uglies, and Jim Butcher's The Aeronauts Windless. And these two are certainly something of a... How do I put it? What's the word I'm looking for? Juxtaposition. That's what I'm looking for. Okay, so, uh, as I was saying, there's kind of a juxtaposition between The Aeronauts Windless by Jim Butcher and Leviathan by Scott Westerfeld, the Aeronauts Windless is set entirely in the fictional world of the Cinder Spires, these massive, st- 
strange constructions that keep humanity safe from the massive and strange fauna of the world below. Scott's Westerfeld Leviathan is set in an alternate Europe, 1914. Main characters are a young girl from Glasgow, I believe, and the fictional illegitimate heir of Archduke Franz Ferdinand. And the reason I bring these up is that though Aeronaut's Windless, as much as I quite enjoy it, is not very punk. It certainly fits kind of the aesthetic of steampunk. There's these weird half-science, there's anachronistic technology, and a lot of airships. It's a really fun read, but it's not very punk per se, as some of the origin of steampunk itself is. It was because it was trendy to name something blank punk at the time. That was the origin of the term. I think steampunk is the first punk genre after cyberpunk to actually use the word punk as an aesthetic. That may be so. I'm not entirely clear on the timeline of these things, partly as I was definitely not alive at the time. Where was I? Right. Um, Leviathan kind of deals with it's a part of a three-book series. Well, for one, it has some phenomenal, rather trans themes in it, which I... Mm, gimme, gimme, gimme. Maya like. But it also kind of deals with these concepts of the world wars as inevitable. It refutes that and refutes that... Refutes many of the concepts of the times. It is a very well-written novel. I generally recommend it. It's also kind of weird in that it it fits the steampunk aesthetic the least. It's more of a cross between steampunk and biopunk, which is something that we hadn't really planned to talk about in the episode, where the triple entente countries from World War One, that being... Russia, France, and the UK have these, they're called Darwinists, and they have these great genetically modified creatures descended from Darwin's work, uh, categorizing species and evolution and all that. And these central powers, Germany, Austria, Hungary, and Ottoman Turkey, are called clankers. They rely on, heavily on steam-driven mechanized warfare. Literally, in the case of most of their things are mechs, however, they do also feature the infamous Ironsides. So it's a very strange overall aesthetic for something that's considered steampunk, but it is more properly punk, rebelling against the powers of the time, despite one of the main characters being quite literally the heir to an empire. I was overall impressed with it when I first read it in high school or middle school, and rereading it now as an adult, I think it's still quite well, well written. Ian, I believe you are also rather familiar with steampunk, correct? Uh, somewhat. Um, 
I was going to mention here, actually, uh, Aeronauts Windless, which I have also read, um, has some shades of what's called gas lamp fantasy, yes. which is basically when you take steampunk aesthetics and apply them to a more uh, fantastical setting. Things like um, the webcomic Girl Genius is a particular example of this. Um, it has the, the steampunk aesthetics, and it's, it's set in an alternate Europe of the 19th century, I think, or early, possibly early 20th century. But it's a Europe ruled by mad scientists uh, who do things that explicitly break the laws of physics and reality. Always fun. Yeah, very fun read. And yeah, some of the stuff in Aeronauts Windless is a little more leaning towards that way, particularly with, like, the crystals. Yeah. But yeah, uh, I, I'm i more f familiar with, with how steampunk is just an aesthetic of, you know, brass and gears and, and steam-powered stuff. Oh, have any of you seen uh, the movie Wild Wild West? It might be no. a little before your time, Maya. I, I know, uh, am not familiar with it. So that's probably the most mainstream steampunk uh, example I can think of. Well, there is one work that is... Well, okay, I don't think it's quite mainstream, but for the purposes of us, it is mainstream. Hit animated show... Arcane. And I would argue that Arcane itself is punk. Now, I don't want to get into spoilers, because I know Elizabeth hasn't watched it, and... I do plan to, eventually. Plans to, eventually, when people stop telling her to. <laughs> Relatable. But there is... There are definitely themes of pushback against power, and the aesthetics are certainly steampunk, Although there is also an element of magitech there as well. Honestly, given my my introduction with steampunk was always stuff that happened on airships because as a little girl I always wanted to be an astronaut, and so I was more interested in that type of fantasy. And so to me, when I first watched Arcane, it was kind of disappointing for the lack of airship content but as i learned more about the genre of steampunk over the last few years yeah it's steampunk <laughs> and then finally for maya's favorite section today cape punk I have absolutely no clue what the heck this is. I figure most listeners are going, Maya, what the hell is Kate Punk? And I can't blame anyone, given that until about 30 minutes before the episode when I was doing some last-minute checks on material, I hadn't even seen the word before, despite already being rather enamored with the genre. Are you about to talk about Sinoverse? Yes. <laughs> Ian knows me well, uh, but 
the most popular cape punk works or most mainstream are a little less interesting. Shows The Boys and Invincible are both a deconstruction of the concept of the superhero, which is a common theme. Deconstruction and reconstruction of superheroes is really common in general in cape punk. That's kind of the point. And those are probably the most well-known ones. Those are also known for being exceptionally violent. And while I promise not all of Cape Punk is like that, the kind of inherent violence of cops with superpowers, but even less training, is a frequent discussion topic in these shows. Well, I say these shows in this genre. It's hard for me to pick the best or my favorite because I like a lot of these. The webcomic Sleepless Domain kind of falls under this. It's also a Magical Girl webcomic, which is always fun. The novel Hench by Natalie Zena Walshots, I think I pronounced that right, is, well, one, it's queer, which I love. Bonus points. Also, a very good story, but kind of the... What's going to happen with the casualties of superheroes? It doesn't beat you over the head for enjoying it. That's often something I see thrown as critique against the boys, especially the comic that the Amazon TV show is based on, of it just kind of hating on people who enjoy the fantasy of there being people who can solve these huge superhuman problems. There is also, as Ian mentioned earlier, Sinoverse. I've spoken about it on the show before. Big fan. And there is also Worm, which is a internet super novel. I don't remember how big it is, but it's it's up there. It's v- large. It's freely available on the internet, I think. Worm by Wildbow. Yes, it is. It's also known as Parahumans. Mm-hmm. It is an interesting read. That was... That was probably my first foray into cape punk type material. Uh, kind of a Another mainstay of Cape Punk that I like, as I've mentioned before on the show, is that the quote-unquote villains... Oh, wait, hold up. Sidebar, before I go there. Spinneret, which is a webcomic. Also Cape Punk, also phenomenal, also does what I'm about to talk about. The supervillains are often, rather than... Mustache twirling mwahahahahas. Usually more... They are usually more unfortunate people pushed some way or another to the circumstances under which they exist, and frequently superheroes act more villainous. And what I forgot to mention is... Strong Female Protagonist, a webcomic by Molly Knox Ostertag and Brendan Lee Mulligan. Molly Knox Ostertag is a artist 
who I believe worked on some episodes of The Owl House, as well as the wife of Nate Stevenson, and has written quite a few other things as well, although they're not going to be as well known as The Owl House. And Brendan Lee Mulligan is the Dungeon Master for the Dungeons & Dragons podcast Dimension 20, which is a critical role with social commentary. And also, instead of the uh, players all being voice actors, everybody is improv sketch comics. Brendan Lee yes. Mulligan is also pretty uh, well known as, uh, on um, Dropout TV, formerly known as College Humor. Uh, he is a f uh, has a number of uh, sketch shows that go up on there and is a frequent guest on the game show Game Changer. Uh, he is a very funny man. Yes. And the two of them really produced something special with strong female protagonist. I am a fan. All right. And we are. Way over time. Yeah. Some works we've enjoyed and advice before we go. I've spoken at length about the things I have enjoyed while talking. Elizabeth, Ian, why don't you as well share some of what you've enjoyed? I'll go first then. Um, some works in various hyphen punk genres I've enjoyed quite a bit. Um, I mentioned Ghost in the Shell earlier, although that it's debatable whether that counts as cyberpunk, but it it was certainly influential. It takes a lot of cyberpunk trappings and was certainly influential to a lot of other uh, actual cyberpunk um, works. I would say, I have not read the original manga, but the 1995 movie directed by Oshii Mamoru is very, very good. The um, the two seasons in a movie, standalone, Ghost in the Shell standalone complex anime series, is... Also very, very, very good. I've been meaning to watch that one. Watch it. It's spectacular. Both story and soundtrack. Like, holy cow, the soundtrack is phenomenal. Um, the, I need to invent more time. I would also recommend... I don't know. I mean... For those of you who haven't seen The Matrix, just watch the damn Matrix. It's good. <laughs> it's good. It's actual cyberpunk. I, I need um, to rewatch The Matrix. Uh, the last time I watched it was a couple of years before my egg cracked. and Oh, yeah. yeah. The first time I watched mm. it was after. And I caught every <laughs> single little thing. Um, <clears throat> I haven't watched the sequels, but the original is damn good. I would also say... Uh, I think Serial Experiments Lane is cyberpunk. Although it's not set in the future... It is very much, it's, it's, it's explicitly not set in the future. Each episode is preceded by someone saying present day, present time. But like, given where Japan was in the late 90s, um, it's not really that much of a stretch. Like, and it, it's, it deals with a lot of really interesting and very, like, I would say traditionally cyberpunky kind of things. Although, it's not necessary. It doesn't really get into the sort of body modification hack, like, or like biohacking stuff that, say, Ghost in the Shell or Neuromancer or whatever else does. But it is, it sure as hell has social commentary. 
I would also say that about Ghost in the Shell as well. Like, especially standalone complex, a lot of pertinent social commentary. I should give Lane another try. The last time I tried to watch that was about 15 years ago, and I kind of bounced off it. Understandable. It is, it is hard to comprehend at the best of times, but I think it's worth it if you just knuckle down. It's really good. Ian? My recommendations. Um, Neuromancer is... It, in my top 10 favorite novels of all time. Although, um, read anything by William Gibson, pretty much. Um, Neuromancer has a couple of sequels that I don't remember as well. Um, there's also All Tomorrow's Parties, which is a slightly more, um, grounded, uh, take on cyberpunk, um, less far future, um, like if if Neuromancer is like you know Blade Runner level thing, uh, common body hacking, uh, virtual reality, uh, people living in space stations, then All Tomorrow's Parties is um, kind of I think I think the trope is next Sunday AD. It's just very near future, and then. Another take on cyberpunk that I really didn't enjoyed is uh, Snow Crash by Neil Stevenson, which came out in 1992 and is a kind of a parody of cyberpunk, really. You've got, you've got the typical trappings of, of the genre. You have super corporatism, corporate feudalism. Um, you've got the virtual reality that everyone spends their time in. However, the, no the protagonist of the novel is literally named Hero Protagonist. So that tells you right off the bat what kind of story you're dealing with there. It's very fun, though. Interesting. Do we have any other advice besides that which we've already dispensed? Have fun with it. Don't let yourself be worried about seeming kind of silly or too bizarre. Because someone else on the internet has already beaten you there. Think about the implications of what you're writing. Yes, definitely. And that's also just generally good advice as well. There's, there's a lot of ways to accidentally hurt people by putting in your work something that you really truly did not intend to say. I mean, just look at Rowling. Not to um, hit the Rowling pinata again, but to hit the Rowling pinata again. The creators of the movies almost certainly did not intend to reinforce and enhance the anti-Semitic imagery found within the Harry Potter novels, but they most certainly did. Uh, Terry Pratchett actually fell for this trap, so... Even the greats of writing can make this mistake. I think that's just about all we have for today. So, before we go, Elizabeth, do you have anything you would like to share with the audience? Anything of yours you'd like to promote? Well, like the last couple of times I've been on, uh, you can find me, my music on YouTube at agogobell28. 
my newest um, upload as of the time of recording is a piano cover of the song Moon from the anime series Turn A Gundam, which is a fucking phenomenal show and people should watch it. And I also do uh, fan songs. The most recent one being for the anime, or inspired by the anime Shinsekai So, yeah, go check it out. And we will put some links to those down in the description if anybody wants to go check those out. All right. Do we have anything in the mailbag today? No new mail currently. And if anybody wants to, uh, you know, yell at us for not mentioning a particular work, you can, uh, we'll have a link for our uh, email there as well. That is... uh, the fanfiction tapes at gmail.com or you can yell at us on Twitter uh, at fanfiction tapes. Yes, please do come yell at us. I just got a library card again because I've been procrastinating getting a new one since uh, high school. Support your public libraries, everyone. Yes, do that, but also give me new things to read. Gives me things to do to avoid doing my homework. Gotta keep that procrastination loop going. Precisely. I hate the software linkage. Well, I am and have been Maya. I am and have been Elizabeth. And I am Ian. Until next time, bye.